0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, and Moyers and Company. And the thing to remember about the idea of taxing the rich is that it's not punishing success if the rules of the game are rigged, which they are.
1: In March 2007, some of the fine folks at Morgan Stanley were brainstorming via email about what they wanted to call a new product they were working on. It was an investment package, essentially, that they would eventually go on to sell to a Chinese bank. Here are some of the potential product names that were suggested in this brainstorming session by a particular Morgan Stanley vice president Uh, Flutterfish 2007, or Mike Tyson's Punch Out 2007. Or he also suggested Nuclear Holocaust 2007. No, you don't think that will sell it? Okay, what about Subprime Meltdown 2007? Or perhaps best of all, the -the right-to-the-point suggestion of... Poop bag, 2007. Only the Morgan Stanley guy did not suggest poop as the word before bag. He suggested the other four-letter word that means the same thing but starts with S. The reason the Morgan Stanley folks were even jokingly suggesting giving their own products such derogatory names is because they knew it was a poop bag. They knew it was worthless. But they would then go on to start selling that thing for a price that would not indicate that it was worthless. This kind of scam is at the center of why our financial system collapsed. Wall Street was selling things for prices that did not reflect the value of those things at all. But here's the thing. That was not supposed to be allowed to happen. You're not supposed to be able to sell financial products for way, 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 way more than they're actually worth. Somebody is supposed to be in charge of making sure that the value of investments is at least reasonably related to the price that is put on them. In fact, not just someone. There is a whole industry. There's a whole part of the financial sector whose job it is to do that. They rate financial products. They give them ratings to help guide consumers as to what they are worth. They issue ratings. They are the ratings agencies, and they are central to the reason Wall Street cratered. The American economy didn't crater like it had been hit by an asteroid because people were investing in companies that didn't pan out. It wasn't that kind of a collapse. It wasn't that there was a war somewhere and suddenly nobody could get any oil or something. That was not why we. Had had a financial collapse. We had a financial collapse because of fakery. We had a financial collapse because people were buying and selling things at prices that were totally totally fake. And the people who were selling them knew it. It was a con game that everybody was in on. And when everybody finally had to acknowledge that the actual value of these things that they had been trading at these inflated prices was not the value they had been trading them at. But everybody finally had to admit what the real value was of these things they'd been buying and selling. Everything collapsed. So even if you don't understand the overall dynamics of the housing market and all the different ways things are traded and how people in lower Manhattan make money off of it, this is the one thing all of us can grasp about what went wrong when our economy was destroyed in a way that we have still not recovered from. That's one thing about the meltdown that everybody gets, right? Which makes this headline today both a wow moment and a duh moment, U.S. sues S&P over pre-crisis mortgage ratings. The government alleging that Standard & Poor's ratings agency knowingly inflated its ratings on risky mortgage investments, giving high marks to mortgage-backed securities because it wanted to earn more business from the banks that issued these poop bag investments. Oh, poop bag isn't in the quote there. Sorry, I added that. So that's a duh, right? Because yeah, these guys clearly should be busted. These were the guys who were in charge of the ratings. These were the guys who were supposed to be labeling the poop bag financial system, systems of the financial world as such. And they simply did not do it because they figured out a way to make money out of not doing it. And eventually that system of selling worthless junk for tons of money stopped working and the economy fell apart. So duh. Yeah, these guys should be in the dock big time. But also not just duh, but wow, look at the date here. It's today. These guys aren't in jail or something already. Nobody has sued them before now. We still have not handled that problem. Should we be encouraged by the fact that they seem to be in trouble now, or should we be very, very worried that it took this long?
2: Oh, worries are about heavy on his gut. He feels he's being punished for the bad things that he's done.
3: Help him, Jesus, help him, send him down a sign Cause he feels he's getting old before his time
2: He says it takes a worried man to sing a worried
4: song It takes a worried man to sing a worried song It takes a worried man to sing a worried song He's worried
2: now, but he
5: won't be worried long
6: Elizabeth Warren, of course, new senator from Massachusetts. And uh, her expertise is banking and keeping them in check. And it's a good thing because they're having a a committee hearing in banking, housing, and urban affairs. And they have all the regulators in front of them, Ben. They've got the FDIC, the SEC, OCC, CFPB, CFTC, and just about every other letter there is. The
5: Fed, the Treasury, everybody.
6: Right. So she's going to ask what appears to be an incredibly simple question and literally no one has an answer this is awesome.
7: I want to ask a question about supervising big banks when they break the law the question I really want to ask is about how tough you are about how much leverage you really have in these settlements and what I'd like to know is tell me a little bit about the last few times you've taken the biggest financial institutions on Wall Street, all the way to a trial? Anybody?
6: Anybody? Anybody? No. Literally, no one had an answer as to when was the last time they ever took any of the big banks to trial. What they do always is settlements. Now, of right, course, the of banks today, are like, hey, I made $100. bucks. i will give you 20 bucks of it, and we we'll call it a day. That's a settlement.
5: She's like, when's the last time you actually went to trial? By the way, the nothing. Ratio, that, that's not the ratio, 100 mm-hmm. bucks and 20 It's yeah. like we made $586 million and we're settling for $72 million. I mean, they're, right. they're dramatic. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but what, what I don't agree with you on is that she's just asking a simple question. Mm-hmm. She knew what question she answered. And oh she, yeah. <laughs> well, no, no,
6: no! Of course, right. I just well, want to like, okay. the devastating
5: part of that question
6: is its simplistic, right? Let's well, yes. just okay.
5: look. I'm not a big deal. Just mm-hmm. I'm sure you have a date. What's the last time? Year? Two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, whatever. Just you, right. Let me know. So she goes
6: specifically uh, to Thomas Curry next. He's the head of the office of the controller of the currency. They're supposed to be one of the top regulators of the banks. This is what happens. We primarily view the. uh the tools that we have as uh, mechanisms for uh, correcting deficiencies. Uh, So uh, the primary motive for our enforcement actions is really to identify the problem and then demand uh, uh, a a solution to it on an ongoing basis. That's
7: right. And then you set a price for that. I'm Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to move this along. That's effectively a settlement. And what I'm asking is when did you last take, and I know you haven't been there forever, so I'm really asking about the OCC. A large financial institution, uh, a Wall Street bank,
6: to uh, trial. The institutions I supervise, National Banks and Federal Thrifts, we've actually had a a fairly fair number of uh, consent orders. Uh, We do not have to bring uh, people to uh, a a, a trial or an. Well, I appreciate that
7: you say you don't have to bring them Mm -hmm. to trial. My question is when did you bring them to trial?
6: we have not had to do it as a practical matter to achieve our supervisory goals.
5: This is a... Uh, yeah, totally, but the... Uh, Suplex! How big an impact has Marco Rubio had on the world? Uh-huh. I mean, these guys have, like... 28 bottles of water within quick, striking distance.
6: So you have the, the, the regulators, yeah. they had to go to those waters just, all just the time. Put a shot
5: up there for one sec. Look at that. There must be eight bottles of water within an easy arms reach for Tom Curry. He doesn't even have to, he doesn't even have to extend an arm. Look at One, two, three, four, they got glasses. You know why? You know.
6: They said, uh, Elizabeth Warren, up next in the questioning, they're like, get the water. Get the water. I need I water. Need water. I need water. Right. So anyway, no, no, no. It's a very simple, Question. Yeah. When was the last time you took them to trial? Like, we, 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 feel, we, we feel like we didn't have to take them to trial. Oh, really, huh? And I'd love to if she had asked the follow up question. Now, when do, where did you last work? And you know what I'm saying? Because almost all those people work either as lawyers oh, even or that. lobbyists I, 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 or actual bankers for the financial industry. So now she, she's not done yet. Okay, she's going to go next to uh, Elise Walter, who's the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. This is a very important regulator. Obviously, they must take some action.
7: We truly believe that we have a very vigorous enforcement program. Um, We look at the distinction between what we could get if we go to trial and what we could get if we don't. I appreciate that. That's that's what everybody does. And so the question I'm really asking is, can you identify when you last took the Wall Street banks to trial? Um, i will have to get back to you with the specific information but we do litigate
5: stunk old stutter <laughs> by the way, she wasn't even sitting next to the first
7: guy, she had four
5: glasses too they were, they were ready okay, come on they never,
6: they haven't gone to trial literally as far back as they can remember no one had an answer that's because they don't go to trial they never hold these guys
5: accountable and that's exactly our point and And it is devastating And one of the great points that she made in the question was it's not just that it, it is not merely or it ought not merely be a financial breakdown of how much it will cost to go to trial between your chances of winning and what so they so if this were a reasonable conversation if this were a conversation that was ultimately fair, that's a decision prosecutors make all the time. It may not be worth the risk of trial. We might not get a conviction. We'll take this settlement here. But what happens when you go to trial is you open yourself up to discovery. And there just becomes this mountain of evidence that you Great don't point. get when you make this settlement. And I think we edited it down. She mentioned that in her sort of opening remarks before she asked the, the question.
6: The person who mentions that often is Elliot Spitzer. Because he was a guy who actually took them to trial. And then you discover all the things, their emails, their correspondence, and you get the evidence. And then if you're an actual prosecutor who cares to do their job, then you're going to go after the lower-run guys. They lead to the middle-run guys. They lead to the executives. Those are the guys making the decisions. And so that's how you do it if you actually wanted to take action against the banks. Now, one last thing she did here is a statement that's really important. Because they say, oh, man,
7: we, we, we
6: did other things. I mean, we didn't have to take the trial, right? She said, but look at the contrast between what we do with the bankers and what we do with the little guys.
7: We've got multiple people here. Anyone else want to tell me about the last time you took a Wall Street bank <laughs> to trial? You know, I, I just want to note on this. There are district attorneys and U.S. attorneys who are out there every day squeezing ordinary citizens on sometimes very thin grounds. And taking them to trial in order to make an example, as they put it, I'm really concerned that too big to fail has become too big for trial. That just seems wrong to me.
6: For example, one of the people that she might be referring to is Aaron Swartz, whose uh, you know funeral services that Was she went she, to. Uh, one of her constituents. Yeah, and and he's a guy that uh, had, according to the government, hacked into uh, the private companies' files. In fact, the reality is he didn't hack into it. He had a contractual agreement with them. He might have violated the contractual agreement and downloaded too many documents, right? But they said they they requested the government did 35 years in prison for that. Now, were they really going to send him to prison for 35 years? Probably not. But they threw the book at him. They said, you could go up to jail for 35 years for violating a private contract on a terms of service. So her point is, if it's a little guy that has no power, you're perfectly happy to go to trial, and you do it all the time.
5: You mentioned power. What they did with Aaron Schwartz was flex their prosecutorial power. That's what they do literally every day, ten times a day in big prosecutor's office, federal prosecutors, state prosecutors. They flex their power and they intimidate people. What they did not, what, what I can, cont- what seems to me, and I'm sure you agree, to not happen one time is they haven't flexed any power they never intimidated instantly this became a process of alright let's start haggling here and we're gonna settle up on it and we're gonna end up with a number and some some activity that you have to participate in to make whole the people who were defrauded
6: right and the point is they want to make an example out of some people on the when it's a little guy right and they say well we had to do it so that other people uh, understand the lesson so What does it mean when they don't want to make an example out of the banks? What lesson do people learn? Well, the banks learn the lesson. It's going to be okay. At most, you're going to have to give a small percentage of your ill-gotten profits back to the government, but they're never going to make an example out of you. You're never going to jail. And go ahead and keep doing exactly what you're doing.
2: income has grown by just 1.7% over the course of uh, the past 3 or 4 years of the so-called economic recovery however the top 1% their earnings rose by 11.2% the other 99% earnings declined by 0.4% in other words The top 1% got over 120% of all income gains in this country over the past three years, four years. And and why is this? It is because, of course, because the wealthy make most of their money from the stock market and the rest of us don't. And the uh, boom in the stock market back to uh, close to pre-implosion levels. Uh, If you strip away those investment gains, the top 10% of earners took 46.5% of all income in 2011, the highest proportion since 1917. Income inequality, as measured by the proportion of income taken by the top 1% of earners, this is from a New York Times article talking about a uh, research paper done by Emmanuel Sayes, an economist at the University of California reached a modern high just before the recession hit in uh, 2009. The financial crisis is an aftermath hit uh, wealthy families, but they are close to being back to their earnings peak of 2007. After accounting for inflation around 2%, median family income has declined over the last two years. In 2011, it stagnated for the poorest and dropped for those in the middle, of the income distribution. So uh, with that in mind, we also know that uh, from our conversation with Duncan Black at Atrios uh, last week about the, um, the failure of 401s of defined contributions but not defined benefit pensions to fulfill the promise of providing for people in their retirement. The Washington Post has a story. For the first time since the New Deal, a majority of Americans are headed toward a retirement in which they will be financially worse off than their parents. The economic downturn destroyed forty percent of Americans' personal wealth. So, for those of you who want to put your uh, want to privatize Social Security in part or fully and put it into the stock market. Do you need any further evidence of the folly of that policy than what is happening right now? According to a a Senate report and the Center for Retirement Research, 53% of American workers 30 and older are on a path that will leave them unprepared for retirement. That marks a sharp sharp deterioration since 2001 when 38% of Americans were at risk of declining living standards. In 89, 30% faced that risk. Four out of five private sector workers with retirement plans at work have only 401k type defined contribution accounts rather than the uh, defined benefit accounts. Numerous studies have found workers with defined contribution accounts often put aside too little money, make too money and many withdrawals, or employ the wrong investment strategies to save enough for old age. So if you're not wealthy enough to get a financial advisor, assuming that financial advisor is not a charlatan, which is a big assumption, if you're just an average American, 401K plans simply do not work. For what they're supposed to do. Overall, people ages 55 to 64 have a median retirement count of 120,000, as we discussed with uh, Atrios, which is an, which is enough to fund an annuity paying about 575 bucks a month. If you are lucky enough to get the median amount from Social Security, I think the maximum is somewhere around 2,000 plus. But the median is somewhere around $1,400. you are talking about less than 2000 a month to live off in your retirement. And suffering the biggest amount of inflation of any American because, of course, you're paying for skyrocketing drug prices and skyrocketing medical costs. The government grants at least $80 billion a year in tax breaks to, to to encourage retirement savings in 401k type accounts however and this is going to become a this is a surprise for you Surprise! surprise the biggest benefits go to upper income people who can afford to put aside the most for retirement someone making 200,000 a year and contributing 15% of pay to a retirement account that's 30 grand a year good luck with that is making a $7,000 subsidy from the federal government in the form of a tax break, whereas workers earning $20,000 making the same 15% contribution would get nothing because they don't earn enough to qualify for a deduction. Someone making $50,000 making the 15% contribution, that being about $7,000, would receive only a $2,100 tax deduction. A recent survey from the conference board found that nearly two-thirds of Americans, 45 to 60, say they plan to delay retirement. Two years earlier, 42% said they would, uh, they would work longer. In other words, more and more older Americans are realizing that they're not going to be able to retire. And yet, you have old man Simpson Bowles in Washington calling them all teat suckers. Two guys who haven't held elected office since the 90s, who are making 40 grand per appearance telling people that we don't need Social Security, they're going around saying that these people who need Social Security are all teeth suckers. Unbelievable. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby. Comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker. And on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on The Majority Report at Majority.fm.
8: It's uh, the 80th anniversary of FDR being sworn into office, and here is clip uh, number one. Chano, here's something that he had to say on this day 80 years ago, as he was first becoming president after three years of Republican austerity brought this country to its knees.
9: This is preeminently the time to speak the
6: truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today, this great nation will
9: endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper.
8: Yeah, there you go. And we did. Because FDR came in and he said, you know this Republican stuff that they've been promoting for the last three years that they've been doing ever since the 1920 election when Harding ran on the campaign platform of more, more more business in government, less government in business? That worked out really brilliantly, didn't it? I mean, it's just like when Reagan in 1982 or 83 deregulated the SNLs. What happened in 86? They crashed. So Harding deregulates business in in, uh, 1921, drops top tax rate from 91% down to 25%. Boom! Hot money hits the marketplace. You get the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties was a giant bubble of speculation. Stock speculation, land speculation, commodity speculation, particularly land speculation. And that bubble burst, the land bubble burst in 27, followed by the commodity bubble bursting in 28, and the stock market bubble bursting in 29. Things moved a little slower back then. Although our land speculation bubble burst In 2006, it was uh, late 2006, it was the third quarter of 2006, into the first couple of quarters of 2007, we saw 20, 30% cuts, drops in housing starts. The Kansas City Fed was freaking out about this. Those of you who have been listening to this program since then know I was talking about it at the time, saying, okay, we are seeing the 1920s repeated. And George W. Bush was basically doing the Herbert Hoover. And, and, and then when the bottom fell out, George W. Bush said, okay, well, we're not going to do what Hoover did. What Hoover did was he just stood there. You know, Andrew Mellon was his secretary of, of the treasury and he said, just liquidate everything. Liquidate labor. Let all those people go unemployed. Liquidate the businesses. Liquidate the bank. Just let them, let them fall. The market will take care of it. Now, Mellon and his buddies, the banksters, who had arguably brought about this crisis, just like the modern-day crisis was brought about by our banksters running amok with greed. Mellon and his buddies were making out like bandits. They were buying assets for pennies on the dollar. They were the only ones who had any money left. So, of course, liquidate everything. And you know, over a three-year period, they did that. And unemployment got up to about a third of Americans. And Franklin Roosevelt comes into office and says, that's it. This is insane. The government should become the employer of last resort. And the government did become the employer of last resort in the FDR administration. And the peak of that, of course, was World War II, and it completely got us out of the Great Depression. Government spending. Oh, my God, government spending. You see, there's this thing called the business cycle. And when the business cycle is down, government spending should go up. Because capitalism isn't a perfect system. It's certainly not a perfect system for governance, but it's not even a perfect system for ensuring life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, for making sure that everybody has what they, you know, just, I was going to say what they need. Um, I think probably a more accurate way of saying it is an opportunity to get what they need. Capitalism doesn't provide that. It's the best thing so far that we've seen on a large scale that comes close to it. Although I think you can make a strong argument that the cooperative movement could give capitalism a run for its money, and in fact is in many parts of the world. Like in the Basque region of Spain, with Mondragon, down in Argentina. Here in the United States, there are more people who work for cooperatives who are members of cooperatives work for worker-owned cooperatives, and there are union members now in the United States. But all of that aside, the fact of the matter is that when the private economy falls, when capitalism fails, as it does every 10, 15, 20 years, I mean, the business cycle goes up and it goes down. And when the business cycle goes down... Yeah, the, the you know the oligarchs, the billionaires, the fat cats, they can buy up assets really cheap and then sell them when the when the business cycle is at its peak and the, you know the the speculators make a lot of money. The banksters make a lot of money, but a lot of people get thrown out of work. And since Ronald Reagan came into office, by and large at the bottom of the business cycles, the argument of the Republicans has been that's just, those people, those unemployed people, they're just the collateral damage of, of capitalism, and it's an acceptable price to pay for a capitalist system. Whereas from 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt came in and said basically, uh, clip number six, Shano, basically said this.
3: Treating
6: the task as we would treat the emergency of a war. But at the same time, through this employment, accomplishing great, greatly needed projects to stimulate and reorganize the use of our great natural resources.
8: There you go. Basically, we're going to put people to work. Government's going to be the employer of last resort, and we're going to rebuild our country. From 1933 until 1981, everybody understood. That's what you do during the down parts of the business cycle. When the business cycle is up, government gets out of the business of being an employer. To the extent possible, you, you, we, we wound up the WPA and the CCC. They're no longer around. I mean, the, the WPA actually at law still exists, but there's nobody. It's not doing anything. So, you know, when the business cycle is up, that's that. those are the times when you pay down debt and you raise taxes. When the business cycle is down, that's the time that you cut taxes and increase spending and increase borrowing. And this is, you know, this is simple stuff. Americans always understood this until the cons and their think tanks came and their shills.
10: Someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne soup and over in the sky. Someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne. Sh- a over in the sky.
6: Bloomberg great report on uh, an analysis done by uh, two folks Kenichi Ueda who uh, was at the International Monetary Fund, so you know he's not playing, and Beatrice Wieter de Morrow, from the University of Mainz What was their analysis on? Well, how much of an advantage does too big to fail to give the largest banks in America? Now, here's what they mean by that. It is a reality that since the banks that are the largest in the country are did get bailed out, and the perception is that they will get bailed out again, they can actually borrow at lower rates. Isn't that amazing? So if you're a smaller bank Saturday for you, you got to pay more than the biggest banks. But the biggest banks aren't actually rewarded for their success. They're rewarded because the government will bail them out every time they fail. So now everybody knows that. The question was how big of an advantage is that? And that's what they did the study on the two people that I just mentioned. And here's what they found out. That the big banks, because of too big to fail, can borrow at... percentage discount. So let me give you an example. I mean, it's an easy one. Let's say a regular bank, a smaller bank in your local town, et cetera, can borrow money at 5%, and then they lend it out at a different percentage, and that's how they make their money. They lend it out at 8%, they make the 3% difference, as an example. Now, if they can borrow at 5%, the big banks can borrow it at 4.2%, 0.8% less, because it's they're seen as less of a risk because the government will bail them out. So you think 0.8%, what difference is it? Kind of that? a tiny bit, right? So their analysis shows that over a year, that taxpayer subsidy, in essence, comes out to $83 billion. $83 billion a year. Now, are you ready for this? It turns out that is about the same size of their profits. So, if they didn't have that too big to fail subsidy and they paid the same interest rate as everybody else, they wouldn't make any money. Those geniuses over there in the big banks, the only thing that they figured out that is smart is you bribe government officials and then they give you this tremendous taxpayer subsidy. Otherwise, their businesses suck. They're not even making any profit. All those mega capitalists, the geniuses that run the world, the masters of the world, right? Do you know that that taxpayer subsidy also equals about 3% of all of the taxes that we pay? So every dollar that you pay, 3 cents of that goes to the bankers for no reason. For the bailouts, which the American people hate, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, it doesn't matter. We all hate those bailouts, and they get 3% of all our tax dollars anyway. Now, how do they do that? Well, the one thing they did figure out right was, ooh, legalized bribery open season in america so in 2011 to 2012 total giving by the financial industry now that includes insurance real estate etc six hundred and forty million dollars spent in lobbying now as you can see of course the lion's share went to republicans and it's not just contributions of democrats and republicans but it's also uh Big, to The super PACs, the so called independent uh, political action committees, etc. When you total it all up, $640,655,870. Now, you think they spent $640 million doing legalized bribery for their own health? They spent that money so they can get back $83 billion. And $83 billion goes to the top banks. That's not even all the other industries. The real estate, insurance, etc. They get different kinds of advantages and tax loopholes, etc. out of our government. Best investment you can make, man, is bribing U.S. politicians. Now, it's a lot of money to put in $640 million. You get back $83 billion, that's an awesome deal. Of course, for the robbers. For us, we get screwed royally. And one last part of this what happened I thought conservatives wanted free markets what kind of a free market is this where the government bails you out and then afterwards you get this artificial advantage because you know the government will bail you out again and then you crush the little guy and you don't have free markets you don't have fair markets you don't have fair competition because of government subsidies if they were actually conservatives if they were actually libertarians they would hate this more than any other government policy the reality is, of course, the Republican politicians are totally bought lock, stock, and barrel for the exact reason that I just showed you. They get the lion's share of all those donations. And if you're an actual conservative and you believe the Republican Party has your best interest in mind, i got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. You're nuts. And they've been using you as a sucker all this time to get the money over to the banks.
0: show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support.
10: The early headline on a New York Times story on February 7th was millionaires consider leaving California over taxes. At some point, they changed that headline, possibly because there's nothing in the article to support it. That doesn't fix the problems with the Adam nagorni piece, though. The story it's trying to tell is about a new state tax increase on income over $1 million, what the paper calls an unpleasant surprise for the rich. And is that causing anyone to flee the state? The piece includes one millionaire golfer who complained and then apologized. Media mogul David Geffen says he's not going anywhere. The best evidence Nagorny can muster is that a CNN reporter put out a call for tax-fleeing millionaires to interview. When the piece gets around to actual data, readers learn that some research suggests rich people tend not to flee their homes when their taxes go up a bit. But, ostensibly to save the premise, nagorni gets an economics professor in Nevada to explain that rich people are motivated to move when their taxes go up. As he puts it, quote, to argue that it doesn't affect a millionaire's location's decision is to say all millionaires must be stupid, close quote. Okay, but by that logic, you wouldn't see many rich people living in California or New York City or anywhere else where tax rates are higher than, say, Florida. And yet, you do. What's curious is how much the Times seems to want us to believe that the wealthy can't bear any additional tax burden, no matter, if this piece is an indication, how hard that case is to make.
2: The Wake Up Call Like an alarm of impending doom To warn us it's only a matter
4: of time Hoarding money. Tom Hartman has been talking about this. Um, By the way, if you didn't see my appearance on Tom Hartman's The Big Picture Show last Friday when I was in Washington, D.C., check it out on our Twitter or Facebook feeds. We posted links to that. Tom Hartman has been saying, you know, isn't hoarding money... No different than hoarding animals or hoarding newspaper clippings or anything else, right? Hoarding is the excessive collection of items along with the inability to discard them. People who are doing the hoarding typically don't see it as a problem, which makes convincing them that they are hoarding challenging, right? The marginal utility of having more money is pretty low. For someone who is very, very rich, and I'm not, talking about, I'm not even talking about people who are making a million dollars a year. I'm talking about the top, top rich people, and there are a lot of them, right? The top very small percent, but there are a lot of these people because this is such a big country. They're, they're just putting that money away, right? The marginal utility of having that additional money stored uh, is basically zero. It's almost nothing. They're not spending the money. They think that they need it. Could we not make the argument that it is a compulsive type of behavior similar to somebody who just, is just hoarding a 100 cats in their house? Uh, they certainly don't need them, and the marginal benefit is zero, and, uh, uh, or, or newspaper clippings or old dolls or
11: anything else. Lewis? Well, I think one of the major differences here is pretty obvious. Money takes up no space, right? Okay. Money takes up zero space. So no matter how much you have, it's not going to physically overwhelm you or any space that you might own.
4: Do you see that, Natan, as a material difference here—the fact that the money doesn't physically take up space—when we're talking about the psychology of it? Um, I mean, I think that the fundamental difference is that
12: when if you hoard anything other than money, say uh, old records, furniture, um, anything, okay, motorcycles, cars—if you hoard any any item that you bought, it's something that has really no effect, apart from the environmental effect, potentially, it has no effect on other people. You can have 10,000 old records, or you can have one. It doesn't really affect anyone else. On the other hand, money is something that if you have and you're not using, and you have just absurd amounts, a billion, two billion dollars, or even more than a million dollars, and you're just having it sit sit there, other people are actually losing out because of that very fact. Mm-hmm. When you buy any other product, people somehow might benefit by, you know, it'll stimulate demand, companies will innovate. In some indirect way, people benefit. If you're just holding money, other people could actually use that money to significantly improve their situation.
4: Lewis, let me decouple your argument. Let's say we didn't yet have electronic bank accounts where money is deposited and it has absolutely no physical repercussion let's say we were in a time where it was coins it was silver coins gold coins whatever and the money did have a physical component then would hoarding money above and beyond what you could ever possibly need be considered similar to hoarding cats or old newspaper clippings
11: i think it would be at least uh, in a lot of people's minds Uh, and of course i mean there are things you could do with it i mean let's say you're investing in, in properties. I mean, you know, there are ways you could get rid of it. I mean, I know this hoarding does happen, and I know there are people out there who have billions of dollars uh, hoarded away. But the vast... Uh, I'm going to say the majority of people who have money like that are very actively involved with, you know, uh, phil- philanthropic endeavors. And I don't know that we can say the vast majority, but some are. A lot are. Um, Bill Gates recently... Uh, has convinced many billionaires to literally give away half their fortunes Mm. to philanthropy and and they're doing it because there is literally nothing that these people can do with that amount of money
4: all right interesting uh... topic for discussion i don't know exactly how i feel about it i think it's a great question to ask what is the effect of just hoarding away all that money? money
0: Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
8: The Swiss. You know, at the same time that every single Republican in the United States Senate voted against a bill that would have ended the sequester, would have avoided the sequester by eliminating tax subsidies to big oil, by eliminating tax breaks for companies that ship jobs overseas, and by eliminating tax loopholes for people who make more than $4 million a year. At the same time, every single Republican in the in the Senate voted against this, and 51 Democrats voted for it. In the House of Representatives, John Boehner and Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy refused to even bring it to the floor. Not even going to talk about it. And by the way, let it be said that on all the Sunday talk shows on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, right across the board, I don't know about MSNBC, but as far as I could tell, right across the board, nobody made this point. Nobody. It's incredible. It's incredible. And then, and, and now, here's Portugal. You know, as I started out, Switzerland has said, 68% of the Swiss voters said, uh, no more fat cats. And by the way, I was wrong when I opened the program. I said that the German word, which is, what was it, Shano again? Oh, you've forgotten it, too. It's not part of my normal German vocabulary. It's not one of those words I learned during that year we lived in Germany. But basically, I, I had said I thought it meant literally fat cat. Man, I was curious because it didn't have kotzen in it, which is the German word for cat. I think fat cat in German would be große, große Katzen, right? Large cat. But uh, actually, it's a word that means swindler or hustler. Say it again. Obzucker. Yeah. The obzucker rule. So in any case, it means uh, you know, hustler. And and 68% of the Swiss said that's it. You know, the obzuckers can no longer uh, just pay themselves whatever they damn well please. Just like the European Union said, banksters can no longer pay themselves more than hundred percent a year in a bonus. Because everybody knows, I mean everybody gets at least a hundred percent bonus at the end of the year. Right. I mean, come on. Give me a break. Fabio Carvelo, a movie maker taking part in the protest in Lisbon. Lisbon? Lisbon's in Portugal, the capital of Portugal. Forty cities across Portugal this weekend on Saturday, filled with people denouncing austerity, saying enough. This idea, you know, what the Republicans want to do to the United States, what the conservatives are already doing to Spain, Italy, Portugal, Greece, the weaker countries that don't have their own currencies and therefore cannot, you know, control their own destiny. We don't want this happening here in Portugal. They were carrying banners that said, screw the Troika. Austerity kills. So Fabio Carvalho, this movie maker taking part in the protest in Lisbon, told Reuters, this government has left the people on bread and water, selling off state assets for peanuts to pay back debts that were contracted by corrupt politicians to benefit bankers. You get what's going on? This is The Cancer Stage of Capitalism. I've been talking about The Cancer Stage of Capitalism. It's the title of one of the chapters in one of my books. I forget which one. I think it's probably cracking the code. It might be screwed. No, actually, it's probably screwed. My book's screwed. There's a chapter titled The Cancer Stage of Capitalism. And as I recall, I mean, I wrote it. (laughs) Sometimes editors take things out, and I remember it in the book, and it's not there when I go to look. But in any case, this is what happens. This is what Karl Marx diagnosed in Das Kapital. Now, I can't give you that chapter and verse. I studied it when I was a teenager, and that was a long, long time ago. But the essence, here's the essence of it. In an economy that is controlled by, in a, in a laissez-faire capitalist economy, where capitalists control the economy and capitalists, by and large, control the referees, of the game of the economy, in other words, the government. You will eventually end up with a small handful of oligarchs who own everything, and everything else will crash. Thus the cycles of capitalism. And when everything crashes, the rich try to squeeze everything they can out of everybody, because they're psychopaths. Not all rich people are psychopaths, obviously, but these banksters who are pushing austerity—this is insane. The only net positive that comes out of this is to to inflate their bank accounts and their political power. And they get their shills on TV and on radio, and they get them in the Congress, and they get the—you know—they they they take over the Republican Party. And now you got a situation where Republican politicians—they're not listening to their constituents; they don't give a damn about their constituents. They're worried that, that the Koch brothers, through, through Americans for Prosperity or Freedom Works, are going to fund a primary challenger to them. Mitch McConnell's not anywhere near as worried about Ashley Judd as he is about some buddy of Rand Paul's. I mean, Kentucky's already elected one libertarian. This is, this is the problem. This is what you, what we are looking at. You know, cancer is when a couple of cells rise up and say, we're going to take all the food. We're going to take all the energy. And the rest of the body just withers and gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it finally dies. That's how people die of cancer is the cancer consumes all the life force of the body. Because cancer cells grow really fast and they live forever. And that's when you hit this cancer stage of capitalism, the society is on the edge of death, or at least the economic system. And it seems, if you look at these 80-year cycles that I was talking about, it seems that we just have to go through the damn crash, get it over with, learn our lesson. And, you know, you would think it would be bad enough right now that Americans would be learning their lesson, but this time... The capitalists are doing something, the oligarchs are doing something that they didn't do 80 years ago, and they didn't do 160 years ago, and they didn't do 200 and, what would that be, 220 years ago? They are funding public opinion. They are, they are running these think tanks so that people like writers for the Associated Press, the Stephen Olemacher, are writing op-eds for the for the, the Associated Press, talking about, oh, the poor rich, they're paying higher taxes than ever before. Well, they're making more money than ever before. And everybody else is wiped out. This is the cancer stage of capitalism. We are here. Oh, well, you know, it could never get that bad. Yeah, they're not going to shut down government again. You just wait three weeks. I predict three weeks from now, the topic of this show will be the shutdown of government that's coming. And that's on top of the cuts that they've already got. And, and, you know, they say, well, Obama got his tax raise. The Bush tax cuts expired. Nobody raised taxes. The Bush tax cuts were were a 10-year sequestration, or not, uh, reconciliation, temporary tax cut. That was supposed to stimulate the economy after 9/11, and it didn't stimulate the economy. By the way, instead, what it did was it allowed the top one percent to make off with basically all the profits, all the revenues. I mean, they're just—they're just making out like bandits.
3: There's hardly a senior grown-up in this country who isn't aware that our economy is no longer working for vast numbers of everyday people. The rich and powerful have more wealth and power than ever. Everyone else keeps losing ground. Between 2009 and 2011 alone, Income fell for the 99%, while it rose 11% for the top 1%. Since the worst of the financial crisis, all of the economic growth has gone to the top 1%, while the rest of the country has floundered. Stunning, isn't it? The behavior of many of those 1%ers brought on the financial crisis in the first place. We turned around and rescued them, and now their wealth is skyrocketing once again. At the bottom, working people are practically flat on their back. President Obama has finally recognized they need help. In his State of the Union, he proposed an increase in the minimum wage. Tonight, let's declare that in the wealthiest nation on earth, no one who works full-time should have to live in poverty and raise the
9: federal minimum wage to $9 an hour.
3: But as the economist Dean Baker points out this week, if the minimum wage had risen in step with productivity growth, it would be over $16.50 an hour today. We talk a lot about what's happening to the middle class, but the American dreams really become a nightmare for the poor. Just about everyone has an opinion about the trouble we're in. The blame game is at Fever Pitch in Washington, where obstinate Republicans and hapless Democrats once again play kick the can with the problems we face. You wish they would just stop and listen to Richard Wolff, an attentive and systematic observer of capitalism and democracy He taught economics for 25 years at the University of Massachusetts and has published books such as Democracy at Work, Occupy the Economy, and Capitalism Hits the Fan, The Global Economic Meltdown and What to Do About It. He's now a visiting professor at the New School here in New York City where he's teaching a special course on the financial crash. Welcome, Richard Wolff. Thank you, Bill. Last night I watched for the second time the popular lecture that, is on this DVD, capitalism hits the fan. Tell
9: us why you say capitalism has hit the fan. Well the, the classic defense of capitalism as a system for much of its history has been, okay, it has this or that flaw, but it quote unquote delivers the goods. Yeah, for most everybody. That was right. the argument. And so you may not get the most, but it'll trickle down to you all the different the, ways. The yachts will rise. That's right. <laughs> the, the ocean will lift all the boats. The reality is that for at least 30 years now that isn't true for the majority of people capitalism is not delivering the goods it is delivering arguably the bads and so we have this disparity getting wider and wider between those for whom capitalism continues to deliver the goods by all means but a growing majority in the society which isn't getting the benefit is in fact facing harder and harder times, and that's what provokes some of us to begin to say it's a systemic problem. So we put together some recent headlines. The
3: merger of American and U.S. Air giving us only four major airlines and less competition. Comcast buying NBC Universal, also reducing competition. The very wealthy getting a trivial increase in taxes while the payroll tax of working people... Uh, we'll go from 4.2% to 6.2%. Colossal salaries escalating again, many subsidized by taxpayers. The Postal Service ending service on Saturday. What's the picture you get from that
9: montage of headlines? Well, for me, it is captured by the European word austerity. We're basically saying that even though the widening gap between rich and poor built us up many of the factors that plunged us into a crisis, instead of dealing with them and fixing that problem, we're actually allowing the crisis to make the inequality worse. The latest research from the leading two economists, Saez from the University of California in Berkeley and Piketty in France, confirms that even over the last five years of the crisis through 2012, the inequality of wealth and income has gotten worse. As though we... Determined not to deal with it. All of those headlines you talked about are more of that. I mean, the astonishing capacity to make it harder for people to have a delivery of their mail on Saturday to save what is, in the larger picture, a trivial amount of money, but that will really impact thousands of people will lose their jobs, everyone will lose a service that is important, particularly in smaller places around the United States that are not served by anything comparable to the post office. And then, as you pointed out, and I have to say a word about it, this amazing display in which we raise the top income tax on the richest people from 35 to 39.6%, only for those over 450000 a year, while for the 150 million Americans who get a weekly or monthly check, their payroll tax went up a whopping 48% from 4.2 to 6. This is so grotesque an inequality that you're watching a process that is sort of spinning out of control in which those at the top have no limits, don't recognize any constraint on how far they can take it. If workers at the bottom get the
3: increase in the minimum wage that President Obama proposed in his State of the Union message, they will still be faring less well than their counterparts
9: did 50 years ago. That's right. What does that say to you? The peak for the minimum wage in terms of its real purchasing power was 1968. It's been basically declining with a couple of ups and downs ever since. So that uh, if you adjust for the current price, the the minimum wage was about $10.50 roughly back in 1968 in terms of what it could buy. And it's $7.25 today in terms of what it can buy. So you've taken the folks at the bottom, the people who work hard, full-time jobs, And you've made their economic condition worse over a 50-year period Mm -hmm. while wealth has accumulated at the top. What kind of a society does this? And then the arguments that come out, which are, in my profession, a major staple for many careers, (laughs) are arguments that, gee, if you raise the minimum wage, a few people who might have otherwise gotten a job won't get it because the employer doesn't want to pay the higher wage. Well, if that logic is really going to play in your mind, then you should keep lowering the wage. Because if you only made it $4 an hour, just think how many more people could get a job, but a job under conditions that make life impossible. Who decided that workers at the bottom should fall behind? Well, in the end, it's the society as a whole that tolerates it. But it was Congress's decision and Congress's power to raise the minimum wage, as has happened from time to time. Even this time, not to be too critical of our president, but when he was running for office, he proposed a $9.50 minimum wage. Here we are in the beginning of his second term, and something has happened to make him only propose a $9 minimum wage. So even he is scaling down, perhaps for political reasons, what he thinks he can accomplish. When, if we just wanted to get it back to what it was in 1968, it would have to be $10 or $11 an hour. And many economists say we just can't do that because it would be devastating. Well, the truth of the matter is that there's an immense economics literature. I'm a professional economics (laughs) person, so I've read it. Uh, And the literature goes like this. On the one hand, there may be some jobs that are lost because an employer having to pay a higher minimum wage will not hire people or will hire fewer. That will happen in some cases. But against that, you have to weigh something else. If the 15 million, that's the estimate of the White House, the 15 million American workers whose wages will go up if we raise the minimum wage, we have to count also the question, those people will now have a higher income. They will spend more money. And when they spend more money on goods and services, that will create jobs for people to produce those goods and services. In order to understand the effect of raising the minimum wage, you can't only look at what will be done by some employers in the face of a higher wage in lowering the employment. You have to look at all the other effects. And when economists have done that, economists from a wide range of political perspectives, you know what they end up with? There's not much effect. In other words, the two things net each other out. And so there isn't much of a change in the employment situation overall, to which my response is, okay, let's assume that's correct. At the very least, though, we have transformed the lives of 15 million American working people and their families from one of impossible to get most of what America offers to a situation where at least you're closer to a a decent minimum life.
3: Are you suggesting, then, that there is no economic reason why those at the bottom should not share in the gains of
9: economic growth? Absolutely. There is no economic reason. And, in fact, I would go further. We know, for example, that the lower the income of a family, the more likely it is to cut corners on the education of their children because they don't have the resources. So here's an unmeasurable question about the minimum wage. How many young people who are born into a minimum wage family that is so low as we have it today will never get the kinds of educational opportunities the kinds of educational supports to be able to realize their own capabilities and to contribute to our society that alone is a reason whether it be ba- whether you think of it in terms of the long term benefit of a country or you just approach it as a moral question or an ethical question by what right do you condemn a whole generation of young people to be born into families whose financial circumstances make so much of what they need to become real citizens impossible. You remind me of something that President Obama said in his
3: second inaugural address. Quote, we are true to our creed. We
6: are true to our creed
9: when a little girl born into the bleakest poverty knows that she has the same chance to succeed as anybody else because she is an American. She is free and she is equal, not just in the eyes of God but also in our own that's eloquent but hardly true that's right and it's it's painful for some of us to hear that because it is so obviously untrue it is so obviously contradicted by the realities not just of those who work at the minimum wage but all of those who work at or even at fifty percent above what we call the poverty level because when you look at what families like that can actually afford they have to deny huge parts of the American dream to their children and to themselves as a necessary consequence of where they are put. And I I don't need to be an economist to put it as starkly as I know how. We can read every day that in the major cities of the United States, apartments are changing hands for 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars. People have enormous yachts that they cruise down. We all see it. We all know it. We even celebrate it as a nation. How does that square with millions of people in a position where they can't provide even the most basic services and opportunities? We don't have equality of opportunity because there is no shortcut. If you want equality of opportunity, you're going to have to create equality of income and wealth much closer to a genuine equality than anything. We're going in the other direction, and so I agree with you. It's stark if our president talks about something so divergent from the reality. When study after study has exposed the myth that this is a land of opportunity, how does the myth keep getting perpetuated? Well, my wife is a psychotherapist, (laughs) and so I ask her that question often, and here's what she says to me. Often, people cling all the harder to an idea, precisely because the reality is so different and becoming more different. In other words, I would answer the myth of equal opportunity is more attractive, more beautiful, more something people want to hold on, the more they know it's slipping away and they would like to believe that this president or any president who says it might somehow bring it back. When you say that there's no economic argument
3: that people should be kept at the uh, should not share in the gains of economic growth, the response is, Well, that's what the market bears. Well, you know,
9: in in the history of economics, which is my profession, uh, it's a standard play on words. Instead of talking about how the economy is shaped by the actions of consumers in one way, workers in another way, corporate executives in another way, We abstract from all of that, and we create a myth or a mystique. It's called the market. That way you're absolving everybody from responsibility. It isn't that you're doing this, making that decision in this way. It's rather this thing called the market that makes things happen. Well, every corporate executive I know knows that half of his or her job is to tweak, manipulate, shift, and change the market. No corporate executive takes the market as given. That may happen in the classroom, but not in the world of real business. you That's what advertising is. You try to create the demand if there isn't enough of it to make money without doing that. You change everything you can. So the reference to a market, I think, is an evasion. It's an attempt to make abstract the real workings of the economy so nobody can question what this one or that one is doing. But let me take it another way. To say that it's the market is another way of saying it's our economic system that works that way. That is a very dangerous defense move to take. Why? Because it plays into the hands of those like me who are critical (laughs) of the system. If indeed it isn't this one or that one, it isn't this company's strategy or that product's maneuver, but it is the market, the totality of the system that is producing unconscionable results, multi-million dollar apartments next door to abject poverty then you're saying that the system is at fault for these results. I agree with that, but I'm not sure that those who push this notion of the market makes it happen have thought through where the logic of that defense makes them very vulnerable to a much more profound critique than they will be comfortable with.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. So once in a while, not very often, but on occasion, I will make a show that you know I think is pretty okay and I put together some clips and it's longer than it should be. But I cannot for the life of me bear to pull any individual segment or portion of the show out. And so it ends up being longer than it should be and we all just have to live with it. So that happened today. Uh, so there won't be any voicemails today. Uh, so for any of you who don't like the voicemail section anyways, this is a little bonus for you. You're welcome. Um, but the next show will actually have a double dose of voicemails because there's some really, really great stuff coming up, and I want to make sure to give enough time to play all those, give them their due, allow, allow them to be appreciated with as much time as uh, is required for that. So for those of you who write in and tell me that the voicemail section is your favorite part of the show, that'll be a bonus for you. So you're welcome for that. So this really just seems like a win-win for everyone. So definitely stay tuned in to the next episode, which will be part two of this episode. and It'll include a bunch of great voicemails, and it's just going to be, I just can't wait myself. I'm sure you feel the same way. It's going to be fantastic. Until then, uh, you can call in, leave voicemails yourself. The number to dial is 202-999-3991. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com.
10: Five pints black and white. Cause you took apart a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to be. A dying man in a living room. The shadow paces for floor. Who'll take you out? Just a fond farewell to a friend. It's not what I'm like It's just a fond.